All right, I'll just say a little bit about who I am since Liz asked me to do that. I'm a, a tropical ecologist uh, and uh, uh, I've been working in Latin America primarily uh, since the early 1960s, so it's uh, a long history uh, during which time I spend uh, every year uh, three or four or five months in Latin America, so I'm, I really consider myself a uh, a dual citizen of U.S. and uh, mainly Peru, where most of my activities have been. And uh, since 1973, I've run a research station in a Peruvian national park, and this experience has given me a, a very close-up look at the realities of parks in, a, in developing countries. Um, later on, after I moved to um, and. Uh, found some very like-minded colleagues here. Um, several of us got together and started talking about this issue of parks in developing countries and the institutional weakness uh, that uh, debilitates many of them uh, as a serious threat to the future survival of biodiversity. So our, our um, little group, uh, which we call the Center of Tropical Conservation, uh, uh, launched a couple of, of conferences. Sometimes uh, I think that maybe we were better off in the, uh, in the good old days of film and slide projectors. Uh, this sort of uh, upset seems to happen a little too frequently with modern technology. At any rate, um, I'm going to be talking about parks and um, our, our conception of a park is that it should look something like this. Uh, an utterly eye-catching, gorgeous place, snow-capped mountains and azure lakes and verdant forests, and uh, not a sign anywhere in the scene that uh, human beings have intervened in any way. It would be lovely if all parks were like that, but uh, the reality of it is quite different. And uh, it's that reality that I want to uh, explore a little bit with you today, that uh, reality pertaining to developing countries and tropics. Uh, I don't need to tell all of you that the tropics is where most of the Earth's biodiversity resides. And uh, if conservation is going to be successful at uh, conserving biodiversity or some reasonable fraction of it, then uh, uh, the tropics is where most of the effort has to be invested. Um, and uh, as I was saying before the disruption, uh, uh, after I arrived at Duke, I joined with some colleagues here, and we uh, staged two, two conferences that led to these two books uh, uh, dealing with uh, tropical protected areas. So this is a, a field that uh, I've had a lot of experience with, and since uh, 1999, I run an organization called Parks Watch, which is uh, centered here in the Nicholas School at the Center for Tropical Conservation, and that uh, operates through partnerships, uh, either individuals or uh, NGOs in our um, in our collection of uh, of uh, countries where Parks Watch operates. And here is that uh, group of countries. Uh, we literally uh, work from Mexico to Argentina seven national programs uh, all together, Venezuela, Guatemala, Bolivia, Peru, uh, Brazil, and uh, the Southern Cone, mainly Argentina at this point, though we uh, 
uh, have some hopes of spreading the soup into Chile. Um, I could tell you an awful lot about Parks Watch, but I'd rather uh, talk about parks uh, than uh, our organization, other than to uh, say that uh, uh, it's a great group of people, and I've been uh, very gratified and, and uh, pleased to be able to work with them. Uh, uh, I'll just point out some of our uh, some of our collaborators in the, uh, the top row. There are uh, uh, Oscar and Gerardo from Mexico. You'll hear a lot more about Carlos and Piedad from Guatemala, Viviana from Venezuela, Lily and uh, Patricia from Peru, Marta from Mexico, uh, Gustavo from Brazil. Uh, uh, the one exception that isn't a Latin in our whole organization is uh, Stefan, who uh, is a Frenchman and uh, Adriani from Argentina. So uh, that's, the, that's the group of people. And, uh, each uh, person or team is uh, active in evaluating uh, protected areas in their respective countries. Uh, we do on-site uh, audits, we call them, of the state of protected areas. It's quite an elaborate process. involves a, a questionnaire formula uh, of form that uh, includes over the 600 uh, question-answer uh, lines. Um, so let's uh, move on to parks. And uh, I'm just going to show this to start out with because uh, I want to make the point uh, that uh, other countries uh, very commonly, very broadly, are uh, running far ahead of the US in uh, declaring protected areas. Uh, the United States was first, uh, but it's uh, far from being foremost in, uh, in uh, protecting nature through parks. If you see here, these are the parks in the western United States. Um, given the 48 states, uh, national parks, of course, only one category, uh, comprised only one and a half percent of the U.S territory within the 48 states, um, a figure that is <coughs> literally put to shame by nearly every Latin American country from Mexico to Argentina. We are now the laggards of National Park. Of course, we have public lands that enjoy some degree of protection, uh, but if you've ever been out the Cascades of Washington and Oregon and see clear cuts going to the horizon, you will realize that our public lands do not serve the same function as a park. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to show you a couple of examples. This is the good news, the bad news will come later, uh, of countries that have taken the park uh, concept very, very seriously. The parks are really the bottom line in conserving biodiversity. Uh, us, uh, with all the science of conservation biology, we haven't yet devised a better method for conserving biodiversity. Um, parks are the, the cornerstone, the very foundation, and if uh, parks are threatened, then biodiversity is threatened. This is the country that has done more to protect its biodiversity than any other country in the Western Hemisphere, perhaps in the whole world. I don't know if the case comes close to matching it. Uh, among a large country, I'm told Liechtenstein in Europe, which is the postage stamp of the country, is more than 50% protected area. Uh, this is Venezuela. Um, it's a country the size of Texas and Oklahoma combined. And uh, Venezuela uh, has protected 46% uh, 
percent of its national territory. Um, this is a truly um, exceptional uh, and outstanding um, uh, commitment to uh, nature protection and to uh, conservation of its resources more generally. Now, the green blobs you see there, those are the national parks. Some of them are very large, like Kanaiman here in the south. It's over 3 million hectares. Um, it's uh, uh, much larger than any, any park uh, we have in the 48 states. In fact, all together in Venezuela, there are some 43 uh, national parks. If you think of Texas and Oklahoma, how many national parks are in Texas and Oklahoma? Well, maybe two. Um, so uh, this is the kind of, of uh, uh, extraordinary commitment that uh, some developing countries uh, have made to uh, conserving their resources and conserving um, uh, nature and biodiversity. Uh, as you can see, there, there are many different colors on the map. They have a complicated system of categorizing, classifying protected areas, their forests, their wildlife refuges, their these, these sort of blue blocks there are so-called natural monuments. Uh, they have a very extensive system. And uh, the Venezuela Park Service uh, is uh, a highly professional organization. I, I have great respect for in parques and uh, their, uh, their abilities to um, uh, serve the needs of their parks. Now here's another case which sort of belies some, some uh, uh, assertions made, uh, uh, sort of anti-parks assertions that one can commonly hear. This is the Dominican Republic. It's a small country on the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. Uh, this is Haiti over here in the western end of the island. Everybody knows that Haiti is the worst uh, case in the western hemisphere. It's the poorest country in the western hemisphere, almost ungovernable, a country with terrible problems. Um, and uh, even Haiti has five um, uh, parks. Uh, I can't vouch for their status, but uh, they're there on the map. At any rate, I can vouch for uh, what is present on the eastern side, that's the Dominican Republic. Uh, if you count there, there are 35 national parks in the Dominican Republic. 35 national parks. The Dominican Republic is one half the size of the state of Virginia. One half the size of the state of Virginia. And it has 35 parks. Uh, now again, there is a real commitment uh, to nature protection. In fact, if you go down through Central America and South America, uh, Honduras has a, has a very extensive park system. So does Nicaragua. Costa Rica is famous for it. But Panama has, I think, 30% protected. And uh, go right all the way down to Chile and Argentina. It's a thrilling story. So some of you um, would uh, find it very gratifying to travel in these countries because uh, there are so many more parks, uh, including some, in the case of the Dominican Republic, uh, three, uh, four core marine protected areas, um, as we were just discussing. Uh, so that's the good news. There are other countries in the world are making tremendous commitments to conserving nature uh, uh, to, a, to a degree that's really thrilling from the perspective here when you uh, uh, are, are so aware of the huge political resistance uh, in the public and in the U.S. Congress to create new protected areas. But if we're going to succeed in uh, sustaining biodiversity through protected areas, 
uh, we have to uh, sustain those protected areas as well. So uh, that is something we're not doing very well. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, uh, parks, um, you might not think so, but uh, in a lot of countries, parks are relatively easy to create. Now, why is that? Uh, the, it's simple psychology, as we were hearing before. You've got to understand human beings if you want to understand conservation. Um, lots of presidents. The presidents are people with big egos. We all know that. They're giant egos. And so every president uh, on leaving office wants to leave a legacy behind him. And parks are the most direct, straightforward kind of legacy. And so presidents love to create parks. And they do that through uh, their executive powers and through their persuasion over the legislature. But <coughs> parks are thereby created as one act of a legislature. Rarely, rarely is the, the act establishing a park coupled to any financing mechanism. That's often left as a completely distinct and separate matter. And so parks are created, uh, they go on a map, and that's all, that's all that happens. Um, if any further uh, commitment is made, it's usually a very, uh, very reluctant and meager one because legislatures in developing countries have other priorities, and uh, spending resources protecting parks um, is way down on that list of priorities. And so that's why all over the world we have this problem of paper parks. And uh, so uh, paper parks are just that. They're fragile. They're incredibly fragile because there's nobody there protecting. So uh, I'm going to develop three cases very quickly. Um, one in Asia, one in Africa, and one in the Americas. And I show uh, what kinds of problems parks are facing in the developing countries of the tropics. The first park I'll talk about there's one in the western part of Indonesia, Borneo. It's called Gurantala. It's right here on the coast. Um, uh, this is Malaysian Borneo up here, but I think most of you know uh, the island Borneo is one of the largest islands in the world. When I was growing up, uh, before most of you were born, I read stories about Borneo. It was a, it was a dark and mysterious, unexplored place full of headhunters. The Dayaks were headhunters, um, and uh, it was one of the most mysterious and uh, unknown places on the, on the planet, um, but no longer. Let's look at Gunungpala. I had the privilege of going to Gunungpala in 1987, just a year before this, uh, this GIS uh, uh, compilation uh, represents here. The park is outlined in yellow. So there's a buffer zone around it that uh, shows what's happening outside the park uh, so that we can compare that to what is going on in the park. Already when the park was created, there was a lot of settlement along the coast, land clearing, that red is land that's been cleared. Uh, but, uh, and so the boundary was very highly gerrymandered to try to include within it uh, the last remaining uh, patches of that the coastal forest. But, uh, a gerrymandered boundary like that is much more difficult to manage and, and control than uh, a, a more simple boundary. But uh, in any case, you see in the buffer zone, there's already a lot of clearing. 
um, uh, there's peat forest mostly in the west near the coast and uh, uh, lowland thick uh, forest in the, in the east. And in the middle, uh, the mountain for which the park is named. Gunung means mountain or hill in, in Indonesian, and that's, uh, that's the landmark that gave the park its name. Well, this is 1988. Um, a few years later, the scene looks different. Uh, there are literally hundreds of little clearings that have appeared in the eastern part of the park. Uh, dense uh, settlements in, uh, to the just to the west of the mountain, not so much in the peak forest, less favorable. And you notice these coastal areas uh, are uh, largely uh, uh, invaded. The uh, cleared land outside the boundary of the park has expanded uh, enormously. By 1999, almost the entire uh, perimeter zone outside the boundary of the park uh, has been cleared, um, and uh, further further incursions inside the park have taken place. Now, who knows, uh, other than making one or two others, uh, who among you students knows what significant event took place in Indonesia in 1999? The dictator Suharto, who had been in power for 20, 30 years, and who was the single source of authority in, in a huge uh, country, was, was persuaded to leave power by raging mobs in the streets of Jakarta. Um, that did bring a form of democracy to Indonesia, but it had other consequences as well. One of them was to leave a power vacuum. And in that power vacuum, um, social control uh, just disappeared. And so from 99 to the next one of these, um, that was it. There was massive invasion of the park. These coastal zones completely red now. Outside of the park is completely red. Why well, I say there's a little bit left here? Uh, why, is, why is that? That's because that's the mountain. It's steep and rocky and unsuitable for any kind of agriculture, and it's left there for that reason, not because uh, anybody was restrained from taking advantage of it. So uh, there it is an example of a failed park. Now let me go back um, and uh, go through these very quickly again. Um, there's a, it's, whoops. There's the starting condition. There's almost nobody in the main body of the park. Um, by 1994, there were small landholders in there. Uh, the pace of things pick up. It's faster by 1999. By 2004, it's just explosive. But that's an exponential process. And it's driven by an exponential process. What you're seeing there is the population bomb exploding. That is what you've just seen. The population bomb exploded in Indonesia, and this is the consequence. Um, we don't like to talk about population. We have a huge societal hang-up about the issue. In fact, it's a global hang-up everywhere except for China. Um, if, um, if we don't get real about this issue, this is the kind of thing we have to look forward to, not just in Indonesia, but in an awful lot of other places. 
here's, here's the data. See, up until 1999, the clearing outside the park, those black bars, was uh, substantially uh, greater. The clearing within the park uh, was somewhat restrained. But after 1999, clearing inside the park just, uh, just exploded until in this last period, it was substantially higher than outside. Well, that's because there wasn't anything left outside. Uh, there we have a failed park, and uh, failed it really, really is, because the kind of land clearing they do in Indonesia is uh, by no means benign to biodiversity. This is a scene from Saba, but also on the island of Borneo. Uh, remaining patches of primary forest, and then uh, completely cleared uh, land, which is then planted in oil palms and becomes a vast monoculture. And most of that clearing and growing pollen was to create oil palm plantations. Uh, as a consequence, uh, there was almost no uh, lowland forest remaining in Bar Borneo. All these colors here, the light pale greens, the yellows, the light browns, the reds, all these lighter colors uh, are cleared land, or land that's been converted and planted in oil palms. The only remaining forest in Borneo is little, little valleys and foothill zones around the central mountain range and one other place right here. Who knows what that is? Yes, that's the Sultanate of Brunei. It's an independent entity. Um, it's essentially the private uh, reserve of the Sultan, who was one of the richest people in the world for a while before Bill Gates came along. He was the richest person in the world. Um, and he just chooses not to clear the forest in his, his little country. So uh, that's the last lowland forest left in Borneo, belongs to the Sultan. What will the Sultan do to it? Uh, anybody's guess. All right, uh, so much for Southeast Asia. Let's go to Africa. This is the country of Ghana in West Africa. And uh, as I said for uh, Latin America, a good many African countries have made substantial commitments to uh, nature conservation as well. Uh, Ghana uh, uh, initiated six protected areas uh, shortly after independence. It's one of the first African countries to gain independence in 1960. And in the early 60s, it created these six protected areas. Um, three in the north, three in the south, two of them small, uh, two of them intermediate, and two that you can call really quite large. This is about 100 kilometers across. So these, are, these are seriously big national parks, Mole and Vidya. And through uh, uh, a marvel of organization that I couldn't conceive of in Latin America, uh, the uh, game guards for these parks, and there are game guards, and there are serious people who are trying to do their best, have kept records of what animals they encountered on monthly uh, surveys that the, guard, that the park guards uh, undertake and have sustained faithfully, consistently from 1960s up until the present day. This is work of a, uh, a young biologist named Justin Brashears, who's uh, now at Berkeley. This is his PhD thesis. Um, I think it's really stunning. So these are the six protected areas of Ghana, and uh, at least initially, uh, they contained, I'm sorry about the slide, we'll go to another one in an instant, they contained 41 large mammals. Um, mammals from the size of monkeys up through um, um, 
carnivores like leopards and wild dog um, to uh, really big things, the large antelopes and elephants and giraffes and hippopotamus and, and uh, a whole panoply of uh, large and charismatic African animals. So here is uh, uh, the status of large mammals in those six Ghanaian parks in 1971, and we're going to look at it again in 1998. So 40, 41 species of large mammals uh, in six parks. Now that could um, potentially give you about uh, what is it, 246 populations. If every, every one uh, of those 41 species were present in all six parks, you'd have uh, 240, uh, what is it, 246 populations. Um, actually, not all parks had all species, so uh, the actual number in 1971 was less, it was 158. Uh, but most species were in several to many parks, so that the average was very close to four parks per species. That is, uh, every, uh, on average, uh, each species occurred in four out of the six parks. Given that the northern ones are in dry country and the southern ones were in rainforest, that's a pretty good starting uh, situation. Uh, number of spe species found in only a single park, uh, there was just one, uh, red collar In 1998, that's just 27 years later, it's not very long. Uh, that number of 158 mammal populations had dropped to 80. Uh, the mean number per species had dropped to two, uh, just about exactly half of what we started out with, but uh, more disturbing in, in that uh, is the number of losses of entire species to the system. Uh, Eleven species uh, in 1998 were found in no park whatsoever, and uh, ten more were found in only a single park. How many of this Probably need to go a little faster. Okay. Um, all right. I will skip over this. I'm going to finish up one more thing. Uh, about my third, third example. This uh, relates to a park in Guatemala in the Peten region, in the northern part of the country, a park called Laguna del Tigre, which was the object of a, a multi million dollar conservation program um, paid for by USAID and executed by CI in, uh, in the 1990s. Well, uh, the Payton Biosphere Reserve was created in 1990, uh, and uh, uh, only a few years later, 1997, um, uh, there was a deal made, a rather sinister deal made, uh, under great political pressure between the government and um, an oil company that allowed the oil, an oil company to build a road right into the heart of Laguna del Tigre. Um, within uh, almost the blink of an eye after that road had been built, uh, people were moving in. And so we're looking down on one of more than 30 settlements that are now inside the park that appeared as a direct result of the construction of a road to serve an oil um, production operation in the very heart of the park. And that was in 1997. Uh, then in 2003, there was a particularly severe dry season in Guatemala. Um, our Parks Watch representative there, Carlos Albacete, uh, received a telephone call 
one day in the end of March, saying that the Laguna del Tigre was on fire. He uh, called a friend of his who works with the, uh, the Pilots Association, Lighthawk. Uh, they got in an airplane and they flew down to Laguna del Tigre. What they found was that they were, uh, they counted 110 separate fires that appeared almost simultaneously on the same morning. Well, that wasn't any accident. These were not accidental fires. Um, there's a long story behind this. They were set by cattle ranchers like this guy to uh, clear land within the park so that they could plant pasture and expand their cattle raising activity. So here you see a huge scorched place. Um, closer up, uh, this, is the, this is the level of destruction that these fires left in the forest. It's absolutely incinerated. Um, here is, take note of that individual tree because it appears in the next slide from a slightly different angle. There it is again. This is only months later. Uh, what was a pristine tropical forest uh, within months was converted to a cornfield and you can see these fence posts. These are people that moved in um, and helped themselves and made themselves at home. Um, uh, other places were converted to cattle pasture instead of cornfield, but the same, uh, with the same consequence, complete elimination of biodiversity. Now here's the last, I uh, hope oh, with me. Um, but just recently in 2006, um, again on another overflight, uh, Carlos noted uh, 11 new clearings uh, far from the road in very remote places of two national parks, Laguna del Tigre and Sierra de la Candona, which is a uh, park to the south. Um, here is one of those clearings. Um, it's cattle pasture. But notice this well-used track that goes directly from the ranch to this point. Well, what's there? Well, there's another track that goes off that way. Uh, that, friends, is a clandestine airstrip. Um, and if you look closely, there's an object on the ground. That is an airplane that has been blown up and destroyed. In fact, there are three airplanes uh, at the end of this clandestine run runway. Those cattle ranches were just a front operation for uh, drug traffickers. These are airplanes that have flown in from Colombia. They make a one-way trip. Uh, they land. The cargo is transferred to trucks. And then uh, the pilots blow up the plane because the flight is very risky and they risk getting caught if they fly back to Colombia. Given the extremely high value of their cargo, it turns out it's more economical and less risky just to blow up the plane and buy another one in Colombia and fly on the next time. Well, uh, I don't want to take too long, but uh, Carlos reported this. Uh, in the newspapers and pushed it up to high political levels in the Guatemalan government just weeks ago. Just weeks ago, the government acted under pressure from him and other conservation groups and sent a, uh, uh, an enforcement team into these remote uh, clearings in the parks uh, they rounded up the people they found there, uh, put some of them in jail, and others are awaiting trial. That sounds good. Hey, we won this one. Uh, don't think so. Don't think so. Because three weeks ago, about two weeks after these events I've just told you about, uh, Carlos and his wife, Piedad, the people you saw in that earlier picture, were coming home to their house from an airport. 
returning from a trip, um, a Volkswagen, gray Volkswagen Golf rushed ahead of them and then stopped 90 degree angles in front of them, causing them to stop. And as the instant this Volkswagen Golf stopped, all four doors opened, men in black police uniforms without the insignia got out with pistols and started firing into the taxi that Carlos Piedad were, uh, were riding in. Um, the fortunate, the taxi driver had Guatemalan street smarts and put the thing on the floor and managed to get out of there and by a complete miracle, uh, neither the driver nor Carlos nor his wife Piedad were hit by bullets. They were, sh they were cut up by flying glass because the windows were all incredibly smashed. There were bullets all through the car but they miraculously escaped injury. And so, thanks to their efforts on behalf of protecting parks, Carlos and his wife, Piedad, are now today refugees. They're in Washington, D.C. They were here last weekend. We spent the whole weekend talking with them. Um, they no longer have a home or a country or a job. They are just helpless refugees. Um, and. Uh, that's the thanks they get for working to save parks. Um, this is a rough game out there. This is Laguna del Tigre, if you look at it now, along the road. Here's the road. You can't see if there's any forest anywhere in that scene. It's all gone. Um, so I think I've told you three stories. Uh, really, at the root of each one of them is the population bomb. It's exploding. It's exploding all around the world. And uh, this is the reality that your generation is going to have to face. I'm an old man now. Um, I've been worried about it all my life. It's time that everybody got worried about this because we care about biodiversity. We've got to really think about uh, interaction between population, parks, and uh, all the things we're doing to try to conserve nature on this planet. So, thank you.